Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about a free three-act worksheet to help you structure your story. Whether you're a plotter or a pantser, a novelist or short fiction writer, this three-act worksheet will help you navigate your material and even begin each new story with a better plan. Download yours at nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Stop getting stuck in the middle of your draft. Go grab this free worksheet, nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Now, many people say that the first person is limited only by what that character sees, hears, experiences, etc. That it gives the reader a limited view of the events that occur in the story. But I'm going to challenge this. Don't get locked into those limitations. First person still has a lot of range. A first person narrator can speculate and imagine, daydream, project, misconstrue, suffer confusion or flawed memory. Writer Unleashed is for you. A writer who has a story you want to bring onto the page and into the hearts and minds of readers. I'm Nancy Pinuccio, writer, editor, and writing coach. And each week, we'll explore techniques, mindsets, and inspiration for writing stories readers can't put down. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's begin. Let's talk about first-person narration. First-person is when a character is narrating his or her own story in his or her own language. For example, I stood on the platform waiting for the train back to Surrey, or we stood on the platform waiting for the train back to Surrey. So I saw did that, or we saw and did that, I did that, I thought that, etc. So the character is narrating his or her own story in his or her own language. Now, there are a lot of advantages to first person. There are also challenges and pitfalls to avoid, and these are where writers often get tripped up. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about the pros of first person, what it has that third person doesn't, and then we'll look at some common challenges writers face when writing first person, and I'm going to give you some techniques to overcome those challenges. So let's get right to it. First, the advantages. What does first person give the reader that third person doesn't or that third person doesn't do as well? First person allows you to, number one, create an immediate emotional connection to your reader. The reader is privy to this character's innermost thoughts and feelings. So readers view the world through this character's unique lens, his or her spin on the world. It feels intimate. It's like hearing a story told by a close friend. 
I've been rereading stories by John Cheever lately. He's one of my favorite authors. And I always feel like he's sitting across from me at the dinner table and telling me something very private, very personal about what he's experienced. So readers are able to take on the character's emotions to actually embody those emotions, their angst, their joy, their sorrow. So we're able to enter the character's experience even if it's vastly different from our own. So we have direct access to that character's interior world and we feel instant empathy. Advantage number two, first person can generate empathy towards villains or antiheroes in a way that's more difficult to achieve in third person. And when I think of an antihero, I think of Walter White in Breaking Bad or Tony Soprano or Humbert Humbert. When the writer places us in the criminal's shoes, into their mind and soul, into their thought processes and what drives them, this creates ambivalence within us because we can't just dismiss these characters as purely bad or evil people. And you know what? That ambivalence keeps readers invested in your story. Advantage number three, first person provides constant characterization. Every line, every word is a reflection of that character's attitudes about life, about other characters, about the world of the story, and about themselves. As the narrator of their own story, we get to see their worldview, their obsessions, their fears, their faulty belief patterns, their motives. And advantage number four, it allows us to explore a perspective and experience that's completely outside anything we've ever experienced. Now, you could say that too about third-person narration, absolutely, but in first person, we're using the character's language, so we're experiencing everything that happens with them through them. For example, in Emma Donahue's novel, Room, we're brought into the perspective of five-year-old Jack, who's being held captive in a small room along with his mother, who was kidnapped at 19 and assaulted regularly by her captor. Now, Jack is the product of that assault. Because he was born in captivity, he knows nothing about the outside world. His mother has protected him by pretending that the rest of the world exists only on television. Here's an excerpt. Today, I'm five. I was four last night going to sleep in wardrobe, but when I wake up in bed in the dark, I'm changed to five. Abracadabra. Okay, on to the challenges. Challenge number one, it can be difficult to write in someone else's voice. For Emma Donahue, she had to take on a five-year-old's voice and not just a five-year-old's voice, but a five-year-old whose entire world existed in one small dark room. So it helps to think of yourself as an actor taking on a role. It helps to put yourself in this person's shoes to think with their central nervous system. Now, character voice is an extension of emotion. 
So if the character narrating her story is rebellious or takes no ownership of her own situation, that will be reflected in what and how she speaks. Now, there's a distinction between your voice, the author's voice, and your character's first person voice. Author's voice is a different thing. It usually is a quality or collection of qualities that pervade your whole body of work. For example, Hemingway's voice is terse and direct in everything he writes. Margaret Atwood has a very lush and poetic voice. She uses a lot of imagery and she'll use a central image and then create patterns with that central image. But character voice refers to word choice and cadence and rhythm and worldview. Your first person character has his or her own personal lexicon. So do they have an eloquent, expansive vocabulary like Humbert Humbert? An average vocabulary? A limited vocabulary? A basic vocabulary like a five-year-old? This will key us in on this character's education, age, worldview, and how they communicate. Maybe they have a regional accent that reflects the character's geographic region. Maybe there are colloquialisms they use. For example, where an American might refer to a male as a dude, the British would say bloke. An elevator would be a lift. Gasoline would be petrol. The bathroom would be the loo. In Italy, they don't ask, how old are you? They ask, how many years do you have? So think about where your first person narrator is in the world or what their geographic origin is. How do they respond to conflict? Are they confrontational? Do they take charge? Do they retreat, panic? Do they blame everyone else? How does this character speak? Is he talkative, reserved, or somewhere in between? Is she terse, direct, dreamy, or belligerent? Your character needs to have a captivating and distinctive voice that sounds different from any other first-person narrator. You want to make this character memorable. Okay, on to challenge number two. Too many sentences begin with I. So it becomes very repetitive. I felt, I saw, I heard, I noticed, I thought, etc. Now this is an easy fix because it's really a mechanical fix. Instead of writing, I heard the wind howl outside my bedroom window, just write, outside, the wind howled. This makes your writing tighter and the scene more immediate. Here's another example. I could smell the Indian food cooking from the restaurant below my apartment, and it made me hungry. So the revised version could read like this. The scent of cumin, ginger, peppercorns, and lentils wafted upstairs through our open windows, and my mouth watered. Just give us what the character sees, smells, hears, touches, or tastes straight up without using I. 
Now, sometimes you need to write, I saw or I heard, especially if it's something unexpected that happens in the story. But once you establish what your character's seeing or hearing, you can just give us the scene. For example, here's an excerpt from Jeanette Wall's memoir, The Glass Castle. One day, Brian and I climbed the hillside to try to find some dry wood while Lori stayed in the house, stoking the fire. As Brian and I were shaking the snow off some promising branches, we heard a loud boom from the house. I turned and saw flames leap up inside the windows. We dropped our wood and ran back down the hill. Lori was lurching around the living room, her eyebrows and bangs all singed and the smell of burned hair in the air. Okay, so it's a significant and unexpected event. So she establishes her first impressions with, we heard and I turned and saw. But as soon as they're inside the house, she just gives us the scene. She just gives us what she sees and smells. Okay, challenge number three. The perspective is limited to one character's point of view. They're telling their story. This means that the reader can only learn information through the character's direct experiences, observations, and interpretations. But this character can't tell us how another character feels. They don't have access to another character's internal state. So you wouldn't write something like, When I told Ted I was leaving him, he felt devastated. Now, the narrator could give us the details that suggest that devastation. She can give us her thoughts and feelings about what she observes about Ted in that moment, but she can only filter that devastation through her observations and her interpretations. Now, often writers want to know how to get across something a supporting character does that will impact the main character later, something the main character won't find out until later. For example, let's say Derek is our first person narrator and Sharon is a secondary character, his wife, who's also an actress, having an affair with her co-star while Derek stays at home taking care of their four-year-old daughter. And the reader only finds out about the affair when Derek does. But you can still drop hints. Maybe Derek stops by the set one day and isn't allowed in because it's a closed set, but he hears the love scene in the distance between his wife and her co-star, and it makes him uncomfortable. And maybe afterwards, at the end of the shoot, Sharon is acting normal or maybe even worrying about how lascivious the scene sounded, or she's overcompensating by being more amorous to her husband. Now, first person can't create the same dramatic irony as third person point of view, where the reader knows something that Derek doesn't yet know, but you can still drop hints. You can make the reader suspect what the first person narrator doesn't yet know, or refuses to acknowledge. The most interesting first-person narrators are unreliable. 
So part of the fun for the reader is to intuit things the first person narrator may not even be suspicious of yet. You can also have Derek go back and forth between trusting his wife and being suspicious, and this can create narrative suspense. Now, many people say that the first person is limited only by what that character sees, hears, experiences, etc. That it gives the reader a limited view of the events that occur in the story. But I'm going to challenge this. Don't get locked into those limitations. First person still has a lot of range. A first person narrator can speculate and imagine, daydream, project, misconstrue, suffer confusion or flawed memory. As in real life, they can get other people in their story wrong. I love this quote by Philip Roth. The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about. Anyway, it's getting them wrong that is living, getting them wrong and wrong and wrong, and then on careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive. We're wrong. So first-person characters can speculate about other characters in their story, but it's more fun when they get those characters wrong. And speaking of affairs... Father Mucker, the novel by Greg O'Lear, is about a husband who spends the majority of his novel convinced that his wife is having an affair. But by the end of the story, we learn that it's a big misunderstanding. She is not having an affair. You can also have multiple first-person narrators. This is a technique that Russell Banks uses in his novel, The Sweet Hereafter, but it's a very advanced technique. So in this novel, he has four first-person narrators, but they're separated by chapters, and it's a very intentional choice. It serves the story he's telling. Now, if you choose multiple first-person narrators, you'll still need to know each character intimately and develop a distinctive voice for each. Don't use multiple first-person narrators because you think it's easier to tell the story that way or because you think you need more than one narrator to tell the story. You're better off learning how to use one character's first-person perspective before you move on to multiple. It's an advanced technique and makes the telling more technically challenging, not easier. Okay, on to challenge number four. Descriptions of familiar things sound awkward and unnatural. If the narrator is encountering new places or new people or new situations, then it makes sense for them to describe the scene as if they've never seen it before. But let's say your first person narrator is describing their own appearance or a familiar place. Let's say they're describing a room in their house. Well, it can feel forced and yank the reader out of the story. So let's say a character is examining herself in a full-length mirror. I ran my comb through my long, sleek blonde hair, examined my lanky frame, dressed in a t-shirt and loose jeans. Well, that sounds forced and unnatural, She would have to be seeing something new, 
or seeing herself in a new light or with a new awareness in order for that to work. So maybe she catches her reflection and is caught off guard by how old she looks. Let's say you want to describe the home where your character lives. How do you do that gracefully in first person? How do you slip in essential details for the reader without it sounding unnatural and forced? Well, if this character is in a familiar room, what's different about it in this particular moment? How can you make the familiar unfamiliar? Here's another example from Jeanette Wall's memoir, The Glass Castle. I looked around the room. There were the the turn-of-the-century bronze and silver vases and the old books with worn leather spines that I'd collected at flea markets. There were the Georgian maps I'd had framed, the Persian rugs, and the overstuffed leather armchair I liked to sink into at the end of the day. I tried to make a home for myself here, tried to turn the apartment into the sort of place where the person I wanted to be would live. But I could never enjoy the room without worrying about mom and dad huddled on a sidewalk grate somewhere. I fretted about them, but I was embarrassed by them too, and ashamed of myself for wearing pearls and living on Park Avenue while my parents were busy keeping warm and finding something to eat. So she describes her house and even the way she wears pearls, but it's all given in the context of the shame she feels about her parents, who are homeless. And finally, challenge number five more character thought than action. Now, sometimes it's easy to give every single thought the character is thinking at the expense of action and dialogue. Now, character thought is a form of action. Dialogue is also a form of action, but a common pitfall to watch out for is to write something that's completely in the first person narrator's mind or showing every single thought rather than showing the action and weaving in the narrator's thoughts where it's essential. Now, for more on character thought, listen to episode 69, where I go into more depth on that topic. Episode 69, I'll link in the show notes on the episode webpage. Here's another example from The Glass Castle that balances physical action with character thought. One day that winter, I went to a classmate's house to work on a school project. Carrie Mae Blankenship's father was an administrator at the McDowell County Hospital, and her family lived in a solid brick house on McDowell Street. The living room was decorated in shades of orange and brown, and the plaid pattern on the curtains matched the couch upholstery. On the wall was a framed photo of Carrie Mae's older sister in her high school graduation gown. It was lit with its own tiny lamp, just like in a museum. There was also a small plastic box on the wall near the living room door. A row of tiny numbers ran along the top under a lever. Carrie Mae's father saw me studying the box while she was out of the room. 
It's a thermostat, he told me. You move the lever to make the house warmer or cooler. I thought he was pulling my leg, but he moved the lever and I heard a muffled roar kick on in the basement. That's the furnace, he said. He led me over to a vent in the floor and had me hold my hand above it and feel the warm air wafting upward. I didn't want to say anything to show how impressed I was, but for many nights afterward, I dreamed that we had a thermostat at 83 Little Hobart Street. I dreamed that all we had to do to fill our house with that warm, clean furnace heat was to move a lever. So sometimes first-person narrators can be suffocating because we're in their head all the time or just too much. We do need their thoughts about what's happening, but we don't want to be inside their head all the time. Okay, let's recap. First person is highly versatile, but it's often perceived as limited, and it's not really as limited as you might think. So we talked about the advantages of first person versus third. When well done, first person is more intimate and creates an instant connection to your reader. It can create deeper empathy, especially with antiheroes. It creates constant characterization because it's the character's story in his or her own words. And it can plunge the reader into an experience completely outside anything they've ever experienced. For example, five-year-old Jack in Room, whose whole life thus far has been in one small room. And Jeanette Wall's experience about surviving horrendous, unimaginable neglect as a child. We live it through her. Okay, on to the five challenges and how to overcome them. Number one, create a distinct first-person character voice. This refers to word choice and cadence and rhythm, worldview, diction, or any colloquialisms. It's how they handle conflict with other characters. It's how they think. It's how they speak. Number two, minimize the use of I whenever possible. In most cases, you can eliminate I and just go directly to what a character sees, hears, smells, sees, etc. We already know the character is observing and experiencing the action as it unfolds. Number three, first-person narrators are not as limited by what they see and experience as it's generally said to be. First-person narrators can speculate, imagine, dream, misconstrue, they can have flawed memories, and they can misinterpret events. Number four, when describing something familiar, household objects, or even their own physical appearance, bring a new awareness to what's familiar. And number five, don't stay entirely in your first person's head. That can be exhausting for the reader. Try bringing more concrete action into your scenes. We don't want every single thought. It should sound natural and intimate, but it's still highly crafted. So there you have it. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you know any writers who need some support in their writing, please share this episode or the Writer Unleashed podcast in general. 
And if you love what you're listening to, subscribe on your favorite listening platform and please leave me a review. Reading how this podcast impacts your writing truly lights me up and helps me create topics for the show. Till next time, keep writing and I'll talk to you soon.